Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester. In this episode, we're going to hear about some fascinating technologies which are hopefully building towards our carbon-neutral future, or at least the one that we're being promised. Later in the podcast, we'll hear about how tidal stream energy might join the energy mix in a considerable way relatively soon. But first, we'll go to the European Space Agency, where the Solaris project is looking at using solar energy from space right here on Earth. Here's Nicole Kaplan. I am an exploration scientist at the European Space Agency, based in Nordwijk, uh, on the coast of the Netherlands, um, which is nice and sunny today. But it's not always sunny. See, I'm jumping straight into the topic. Oh, well, yeah. So tell me what it is. Tell me, tell it's Solaris, right? Which to me sounds like a rather wonderful old Russian sci-fi film. You, you're not wrong um, in thinking that it's related to sci-fi because the original concepts um, were indeed um, sci-fi. So Solaris, uh, in essence, is space-based solar power that is uh, beaming energy wirelessly um, from the sun to solar panels in orbit to a receiving station on Earth through the form of microwaves, converting that energy into usable power um, for the grid, for people like you and me and everybody else. The, the idea itself has been around um, for, yeah, I think, just over, over a century. I think the earliest evidence that we found uh, of this uh, was in the 1920s, um, a Russian theorist um, called Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, I think I'm pronouncing that right, my Russian is not very good, proposed deploying gigantic mirrors in space um, to, to reflect the uh, solar energy back down to Earth. And adorably, this was in the context of boiling, I think it was 10 cups of coffee within two minutes um but but he um he decided that clouds could be a problem um so i don't think ever took that idea further you mentioned sci-fi so a little later on in the 1940s uh, isaac asimov uh, wrote about weatherproof uh, microwave beams this is in his story reason or reasons I, I don't remember um and and this was beaming microwaves from space uh, to power things not only on earth but uh in other in other space destinations or wherever we would need power on, on the moon or, or beyond um and so it it's it's sort of rooted in 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 science fiction. Um, but then since then, uh, there's been a trend of interest coming and going. Um, multiple space agencies, big industries have discussed this, but the barrier has usually been related to, unsurprisingly, the cost of the thing, uh, launch costs. As that landscape is changing and things are generally becoming cheaper to send to space, um, we can put it on the table again. Um, and we are not the only ones doing this. So it's quite an exciting time. But is it, I mean, is like a real feasible thing that might actually happen? So at the moment, and I can see your face looking at me, <laughs> filled with uh, scepticism, um, and, and rightly so, because this is an enormous, enormous operation. It will be a big engineering challenge. Um, at the moment, uh, what ESA, European Space Ag Agency, are doing, um, and I'll speak, I'm not an engineer, but I will use engineering speak for just 
a hot moment is uh, phase zero or pre-phase A studies. And what this means is uh, the feasibility study. So we're um, picking this concept apart, um, involving uh, industry, industrial partners um, to help us ascertain whether or not this is a viable thing. And and we've already done a few things uh, because, as I mentioned a bit earlier, the, the biggest barrier historically was cost. So first things first, money talks. And we had the advice of two independent studies on cost benefit analyses, and they both determined that this could be viable. Um, But it just depends on a number of factors. But things getting cheaper means that that could be going uh, in a positive direction. Okay, what's getting cheaper? Uh, The cost of sending anything to space um, per kilogram, um, things that used to cost uh, 100 billion would now cost 1 billion, uh, for example. And that's, that's a really like rudimentary kind of statement to make. But uh, the cost of, of anything per kilogram uh, in general is getting cheaper. SpaceX, for example, um, who have completely um, revolutionized the landscape and changed the game with sending things to space and also making it better, I suppose, in terms of um, the reusable launchers. Could you tell me a bit more about how it would work? How do you beam the energy from solar panels in space? If you imagine a solar farm on Earth um, at scale, and these are actually getting bigger on Earth, um, imagine this, but in orbit. So out in space, um, and we're targeting something called a geosynchronous orbit. Um, So that would be quite far away, Um, far enough away from Earth that it would receive... um, it's high enough in the atmosphere so that it would receive this uh, solar radiation um, or sunlight all of the time, so 24-7, and that would also be unfiltered. So unlike on Earth, where you have the atmosphere, clouds, in space you don't have that. We don't, we don't have space clouds. We do with, with cosmic dust, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, so, so you have this uh, high-intensity solar energy that would essentially interact with the photovoltaic cells. So you would have these large solar panels, if you like, all joined together. And when I say large, I'm, I'm not talking about just um, yeah, the size of the ISS, which is the largest object that we've put in space. I mean, this would be an order of magnitude greater if it was to produce the power that we needed. So we're talking an enormous, enormous structure. So just imagine this huge um, solar farm. It's out there in space. It's hanging there and it's receiving energy from the sun. Then power will be beamed via the microwaves energy from this structure um, hanging out there in space um, to uh, a rectenna or a rectifying antenna array that would be still fairly big, but not as big at a given location on, on ground. And then what that would do, that receiving station would then um, take that energy and um and process it and transfer it to usable energy to be fed into the grid. And you're nodding because it, it I mean, it is an enormous, an enormous, uh, it's just an ambitious project, really. And yeah, there are still many, many questions to do with feasibility, which is the whole reason we're performing these feasibility studies. But the technology, uh, or the physics, should I say, the physics isn't new. Um, and there are several players that have um, demonstrated that this 
can be done. And most recently um, in the United States, uh, Caltech um, did a, a small uh, tech demo. Um, obviously, yeah, nowhere near uh, on the scale of what we would like to do. Um, but they put uh, they put a, a smaller structure in space and uh, and beam the energy back down uh, to Earth. And it's reported to be successful. I'm still waiting to see the, the full details to come out of that study. Um, but so this is nothing new, um, but we're doing it. And if it can be done and it can be scaled up and it's cost effective and it's safe, um, then it could contribute significantly to the energy mix that we have on Earth and try and lessen our grip on fossil fuels. And so it will take it on a huge role in, in decarbonisation and achieving net, the European goal of net zero by 2050. So within the next decade, we would hope to see the first um, gigawatts of power um, beamed to Earth. Oh, right. Okay. The energy from the sun is, you know, for the lifetime of humanity, always going to be there. If we, if we could do this, could it power everything? That's a big question. Um, I, at this point in time, I do not think that it would be able to take over from all of the other, um, sources of energy, um, that we currently use, but indeed for, for what's known as baseload power. So that's uninterrupted power. So non-intermittent, um, sources of power, it could really be a goer. Um, the problem here with other, um, energy alternatives, brilliant ones, such as wind and hydropower, um, they're weather dependent and also location dependent. And so space-based solar power is um, is free from those constraints. Mm. I mean, I, pre- I presume you wouldn't need batteries as well, because you know how much power you're getting all the time. It, it would be a constant. Yeah. Um, and so one of these, to put it into context, one of these uh, orbiting solar farms um, could replace a nuclear power station. Just for a further bit of context, a one gigawatt power plant in space would be comparable to the top five solar farms on Earth. And a power plant with a capacity of one gigawatt could power around 875,000 households for one year. But let's get back to that conversation with Nicole. In in terms of the location in space, is that going to be an issue? Because there's quite a lot of stuff in space already. There's a a lot of stuff in space, (laughs) indeed. Um, uh, Yeah, we have some very clever folk here at ESA working on exactly where you would place um, place such a, a large-scale solar farm in space. And of course, the orbit is very important um, because of the day-night cycles. So you're going to have to have, um, the, like I mentioned earlier, a geosynchronous orbit. So it would follow, um, it would follow a, a particular location on Earth in order to beam that power continuously, but also the shape of the, the solar farm itself um, would need to be created such as that you wouldn't get total darkness. You would you would always have some illumination um, on these solar panels. So I would imagine something like a, like a lattice. I mean, I'm a biologist, so I think of everything in a double helix kind of configuration. <laughs> um, just like a big, big bit of DNA made of solar panels. It'd be quite cool. How, just quickly while we're there, how does a biologist end up doing this? Good question. Um, so I joined the project um, a couple of months ago. Reason being is because 
although we have all of these grand plans, there are a lot of unknowns. And there are a lot of unknowns that we would really enjoy uh, learning more about from the scientific community. So my role is research scientist uh, on this on this project, and I am coordinating uh, various research activities that will go into informing uh, a safety case uh, f- for this. I mean, we already know a lot about radio frequencies um, and microwave radiation. I think, generally speaking, you can one one could understand that this sort of radiation isn't ionizing. Um, but what does microwave radiation equal? heat and so the effects that um, a beam of, of microwave uh, microwaves coming from the, the sun uh, would have uh, would have on humans on plants on animals um, we really need to understand this better and, and then there's also the case of what would happen uh, to infrastructure if you're if you're beaming uh, these microwaves at a certain frequency, what are the implications for um, interference uh, with other uh, telecommunications devices, um, other satellites, other spacecraft? Um, could could that be a problem? Um, as well as what the interactions with the atmosphere itself are and the ionosphere. So there's all of these um, specific topics which we're really interested um, to learn more about. Uh, and here's a little bit of a plug. There's actually a call out now um, if you go on the ESA website, uh, ideas.esa.int, uh, you can apply uh, to be a part of this research if you are um, an expert in the field of, uh, of ionospheres or atmospheric, um, atmospheric science um, and microwave radiation. <laughs> that would be very useful to us. Yeah, oh, I'm sure there's people listening who will be uh, experts in those fields. Yeah. So yeah, so come aboard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we obviously we'll post links to that on the on the Physics World website as well for for those sorts of uh, people who are interested in that. There's fusion energy, which is always promised thirty years in the future, and that's why I'm slightly more excited about this because you've said maybe the first gigawatts in the next decade. Yeah, it seems a little bit closer, and then. Um, I also wanted to just go back and talk cost for a moment. I mean, a lot, a lot have been has has been invested into into fusion tech, um, and I don't know how much has even been spent on um, oil exploration. Um, I mean, in the I think in the last couple of years, it's been in the hundreds of millions by certain oil companies um so if you if you think about the cost because people say well this is just going to be too expensive if you contextualize it like that then perhaps not um and then the build of a nuclear power station if you take your local example down the road in bridgewater i think hinkley point c is reported to cost in the region of 40 billion dollars which is what about 30 should we say 33 um, a billion euros, uh, something like this is going to cost a similar amount. Um, at the moment, we, we're looking at 15 to 20 billion for the first operational phase. Um, and of course, there's going to be additional costs with, uh, with, with, the, with the maintenance because this thing is going to have to be maintained. Space is a really harsh environment. So um, that's going to have to be taken into consideration. But it, is it expensive? Yes, um, but it's, I would say, no more expensive than 
alternative energy sources. Uh, presumably, it's all going to be remotely fixed when it goes wrong, right? <laughs> we would um, we would have uh, yeah robotic assembly of these of these vast solar arrays, so no crew needed. Okay, I'm on board. Great, <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign you up. I'll, I'll be one of those um, um, solar energy door to door salespeople. Instead of having these on your roof, how about? <laughs> You just you just look up. Actually, um, that's a really interesting uh, interesting point as well. Somebody asked me, um, an astronomer, said, "Well, isn't this going to cause light pollution? Is this just going to be another thing in the sky that's going to get in the way of my lovely um, astro, you know, astronomy and, and, and photography?" Um, and we're going for something that is so far away uh, that it should not. Uh, cause any light pollution mm. so we won't see them in any like if i got if i pointed a telescope in the right direction would i be able to see the the solar P- probably if you were looking for it yeah. um maybe at certain angles if it was if it was shining yeah. um but uh but on the whole no we're, we're trying to be yeah uh discreet yeah. with this one yeah, but the, don't but, want to ruin the night sky. But this, right? There's this one. But may, if this works, right? Then this this is a really good solution. And maybe, mm. maybe we need a hundred and fifty. Maybe, maybe. And 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 as the technology for beaming these vast amounts of power um, gets better, if we can beam them further and further, uh, then we could send things further away. Thus. You know, not having the uh, the space space junk. I mean, it wouldn't. It, w- it would eventually be space junk um, that we would have to retrieve and, and, and deorbit. Um, but as part of um, European Space Agency has a clean space initiative, and then is that anything that we're sending up to space, uh, we need to think about the whole life cycle, cradle to grave, um, so that we're not adding to yeah the vast amount of uh, of space junk that is floating up there because it is it is a real problem yeah especially for human exploration if we want to go out there we don't want to be dodging <laughs> solar farms no, no. quite nice to plug your spaceship in though to the to the solar farm as you were going can you imagine like a little welcome break for your uh <laughs> for your orbiter that'd be amazing i mean so but solar power is nothing new in space right there's plenty of spacecraft that's powered by solar Energy. Sure, and, and and this isn't this isn't a new concept at all. I mean, if you you could even think of this as a huge telecommunication satellite, um, it's, it's still sending energy, it's sending information, but it's just yeah, it's just a different different utilization. Okay, so you, you talk about the feasibility studies. Um, is it, but how do people get involved in that? Is that something people get involved in? Um, so the feasibility um, is currently underway with industry. We have selected our industrial partners to uh, a couple of industrial partners actually to um, to, to to do the feasibility and also um, d- design. Uh, so so actually putting plans for the architecture um, to us for us to review um, to see if they make sense. Um, but for for getting involved on the research side, um, we have this uh, have this announcement of opportunity on our website, um, which is specifically soliciting for um, ideas uh, to help us better understand um, the effects that the microwave radiation could have on um, humans, animals 
plants, um, atmosphere, ionosphere, and uh, and infrastructure itself. If people who are maybe not necessarily research scientists but want to know more about what's happening at ESA, is there anything they can do? Well, we have something very exciting coming up. Um, uh, in October, we will have our annual open day. Um, this is taking place weekend of 7th and 8th of October. Uh, and this is where we open our doors to the general public and they let people like me out of their cages <laughs> to come and speak to speak to speak to you about uh, anything that you want to know about space. Um, I also want to draw particular attention to the event that we're hosting on the 7th. That is specifically for um, people uh, with disabilities. So this is um, exclusively um, exclusively inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is uh, yeah, just a, going to be a quieter day because the open day itself can be a bit of a challenge if you need, for example, a mobility aid to get around site. Lots of people in a small space might not be an easy thing to, to navigate. So we have this uh, special day on the 7th of October, which is um, uh, for folk with disabilities to come along and meet us. And then on the 8th, we have the general open day. So same again, um, just a bit busier. And that is over in Nordwijk in the Netherlands, um, not far from, from Amsterdam. Um, and it's free to free to come along. Uh, you just need to go to our website, um, and the links are all there, and, and you can you can sign up there for free. Just as the sun always shines in space, on Earth the tides are a potentially never-ending source of power. Tidal stream energy is a way of harnessing the energy from the daily ebb and flow of the ocean's tides, which as you'll know, is primarily driven by the gravitational pull of the Moon on the Earth. Here's Danny Coles, a research fellow at the University of Plymouth, working on the TIGER project. TIGER is Tidal Stream Industry Energizer project, a uh, almost 50 million euro project involving universities and industry and development agencies in the UK and France. And really, Tiger is designed to try and accelerate the tidal stream energy sector. Um, and so it's a huge amount of collaboration going on between academics and industry partners in order to you know, get turbines into the water, um, get sensors into the water that can allow us to better understand the tidal characteristics and tidal flows and also to drive cost reduction and better understand cost reduction within the sector, which ultimately is going to get us to a point where tidal stream can deliver, um, you know, sort of electricity that is that is affordable and provides system benefits as well. I think that my main question really about tidal energy is why don't we have it already? Yeah, that's, that's a question a lot of people ask. And I think if we take the, the sort of selection of renewables, if you like, that we have in the UK specifically, um, solar and wind, I, I sort of see as the low-hanging fruit. They're the cheapest to develop in those initial stages. Um, so, you know, from sort of 20 years ago or so, 30 years ago, that they started getting developed. And obviously, because onshore wind and then solar as well is is more easily accessible because it's installed on land, um, that makes it cheaper. And so it's it's that's why I say it's the low-hanging fruit. But what we're seeing now is that now that we've brought on a lot of solar and wind onto the system, and we'll obviously need to continue doing that, and rightly so, um, that does also provide 
additional challenges as well um, when it comes to things like um, balancing supply with demand, for example. So obviously the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And actually what we're seeing from a research perspective is that by diversifying the different types of technology that we're using to generate clean electricity, we can actually enhance supply demand balancing. So, you know, when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, then maybe tidal energy or wave energy or whatever else can pick up that sort of shortfall in order to make sure that we're, you know, balancing our system. How does this tidal stream system work then compared to using the waves? So tidal stream energy is effectively like putting a, a wind turbine underwater. And so, you know, when the tide comes in and out every day, as you see if you visit the beach or something, um, the flow of water over those blade, turbine blades is rotating the blades and that turns a generator to create electricity. Now, that's very different to wave technologies that are, are using the sort of up and down motion, if you like, of the waves in order to generate electricity. And that can be done in different ways. Um, so, for example, one approach is to use an oscillating water column. Um, which is essentially a cylinder um, that uses the wave motion to pump air through a turbine. And and that, again, generates electricity. So they're two very different technologies. um, And we see that also the the way that the the generation is affected by the resource is also different. So with tidal, we see these four periods of tidal generation per day as the tide comes in and out twice a day especially around the UK, whereas with wave, what happens, generally speaking, the waves are created by the wind. Um, And so what we'd see if we had a wind turbine installed next to a wave device is that the wind would start generating, the wind turbine would start generating electricity first, and then the wave resource sort of lags the the, the wind resource, so that that would come later. And again, as I alluded to earlier, that, that sort of provides those system benefits because it helps fill the gaps, if you like, because of the intermittency of, of renewable power. So with the tidal turbines, is that working in the same way that a, a wind turbine is working on land? Do they have to be much stronger to be in the sea? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So there's some, some, some similarities and differences, if you like. So yeah, if, if you were to look at a, a tidal stream turbine, generally speaking, they, they look broadly similar in that they have sort of two or three blades they're um, orientated sort of horizontally their their axis is horizontal to the to the flow direction um but 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 yeah the difference the main difference at the moment is that tidal turbines can be significantly smaller than wind turbines and and the reason for that is that the water is significantly more dense than than the wind or the air um and so it's actually possible to to extract um a significant amount of energy from a tidal flow um, using a sort of, well, the scale of these things are sort of roughly 20 metre diameter rotors, whereas wind turbines are getting far in excess of 100 metres. So that's one difference. Um, What we're seeing with tidal also is that you can either connect the tidal turbine to the seabed, sort of in a similar way to you do with a, a wind turbine, or what we're also seeing now is floating tidal stream turbines. So it's essentially a, a sort of almost like a big cylinder that floats on the on the free surface of the water. And then the turbine or turbines, sometimes there's multiple turbines connected to a floating structure, 
are um, just underneath. Um, and that has some benefits when it comes to access to the turbine. Um, if, for example, there needs to be some maintenance done or, you know, that, that sort of thing, um, that it's far easier to access the, the components by floating the device. And is the tide, the, the, the amount of energy that's generated by the tides, is that a constant thing or is it, does it ebb and flow? Sorry to say. No, no, no. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. So yeah, there are different types of sort of tidal behavior that are important to consider. Um, so the first one is is the flood and ebb. So the, the change in direction of the flow um, that happens on a sort of, uh, sort of six hour um, cycle. Um, and, and, you know, you get a flood tide that comes in um, and then that's, uh, the, the tide then changes direction and we call that slack tide where there's not really much flow speed you know in that period at all and then the direction changes and then we get the ebb tide that comes out um, and then there's also spring neap cycles so spring tides are um, are when the the sun and the moon are aligned with the earth um, and because of that the gravitational force of the sun and the moon uh, combining, um, we see uh, significantly higher um, sort of tidal range or, um, in, in those periods. Whereas in um, neap tides, the sun, moon and earth are, are not aligned. Um, and so the gravitational force is no longer sort of combined together. And for that reason, um, the tidal range becomes, is, is reduced. Near where I live, and indeed where the Physics World offices are, in Bristol, in the southwest of England, is the Severn Estuary, which has the second largest tidal range in the world. I wondered if that sort of range makes any difference to this tidal stream. There's an important distinction to make there between tidal stream technology and tidal range technology. Um, so tidal stream turbines so, uh, so using the, the, the stream of, of, of tidal flow in order to turn a turbine to, to turn a generator whereas a tidal range scheme is is using the the height difference um, of the tide in order to generate and, and how that works with the barrage there is that the water the, the tidal flow comes in through the barrage wall um, and then the barrage wall is sort of closed so no more flow can get through um, and then as the tide changes and the tidal height reduces outside of the barrage, um, the water within the barrage is released and that turns a turbine to generate power. So they're quite two quite different technologies. But generally speaking, with a tidal stream turbine, um, devices that are installed at the moment are roughly about 1.5 megawatts uh, in capacity. So you can compare that to sort of the largest winter offshore wind turbines, which are now sort of 15 megawatts, if you like. So see, technology's um, smaller, um, but but there's now work being done to increase the scale of these tidal stream turbines um, in order to achieve more energy per turbine, and that helps reduce the cost of energy through economies of scale. Um, a single turbine, typical turbine that's installed in the water at the moment um, would be expected to power approximately 1,500 homes over a year. So yeah, so it's a, it's a significant amount of electricity being generated. So if you were, if they were literally hooked up to that, 
They wouldn't need anything else for the entire year. Well, so there's some caveats to this. <laughs> yeah, um, in that, you know, obviously the tide is not always generating when you need electricity, for example. And and so a lot of the work we're doing at the university at the moment is is, is looking at trying to understand how you could combine energy storage, for example, with a tidal stream turbine or tidal stream turbines in order to um, help match supply with demand um, continuously throughout the year. But but realistically, yes, we'll need a, a wide range of technologies, wind, solar, tidal, wave and you know geothermal and, and nuclear and all those things in order to ensure that we can match supply with demand every single second of every single year, you know. Um, and, and that's a real challenge moving forward, given that renewables are an intermittent source of, of, of energy. Tidal stream energy is more consistent than wind energy. Yeah, exactly. And it's predictable as well. So we know exactly when a tidal stream turbine will be generating. You know, even 100 years from now, we could say at this time, 100 years from now, how much power would we expect the tidal turbines to be generating? And that's really important when it comes to things like designing the grid system for the future and how much storage we'll need and all of those sorts of questions, because we already know how much power would be generated at any given moment in time. Um, and so, yes, it becomes much more compatible with energy storage um, and much more compatible with things like demand response as well, where you can shift your demand to when the electricity is being generated by a renewable source. We'll return to Donny later in the podcast. But of course, there are concerns about putting any kind of machinery into the marine environment. Here's Douglas Gillespie. I work at the Sea Mammal Research Unit at the University of St Andrews. Although the, um, the units are dominated biologists and we're studying biology, my background is actually in physics. So I specialise in making underwater tracking systems for marine mammals mostly using passive acoustics. So that's picking up the sounds that animals make when they're foraging, communicating, etc., and using those sounds to track, identify, and monitor the behavior of animals underwater. But recently, some new active sonar tools have become available, which we're becoming increasingly reliant on, particularly for studying animals which don't vocalize very much in UK waters, such as some species of seals. But there's two seal species in UK waters. There's um, grey seals and harbour seals. And yeah, they're pretty much all around the UK coasts. But certainly in the case of harbour seals, the populations have been declining in recent years. So they are of conservation concern. And um, it's very important to us to, as we introduce sort of new technologies into the marine environment, our kind of role as the sort of National Marine Mammal Lab in many ways is to try to understand how animals are interacting with these devices. So some research that colleagues have done on wind farms has actually been shown a very positive effect in that animals appear to be foraging around the foundations of the wind farms. But of course, with tidal energy devices, they look like a kind of short squat wind turbine mounted on the sea floor that they, of course, got, have got moving parts underwater. So just as some birds do get killed by wind turbines, there's, of course, a risk that marine mammals and obviously fish species and any animal moving in that environment could be injured or killed by the moving parts of a turbine. Now, 
I, I won't even put my neck out and say whether we think that's likely or not, but our job is certainly to study that and find out how animals are moving around these devices. And what are you finding? What can you tell me that you're finding? I, I can't tell you. Where, that's a tricky one. We are moving towards publishing this stuff in the next few months. And we've got, so we've just finished a data collection period where we monitored a, an operational tidal turbine off the north coast of Scotland for a 12-month period, operating 24 hours a day with you know, multi-beam active sonar mounted on a platform close to the turbine. And we have detected a lot of seal tracks going quite close to the turbine. And we're currently just in the final stages of analysing how those tracks move relative to the turbine rotors. Now, I can't, I can't tell you any more than that at the moment because we really are just at the stage, as in all research, you know, some this is novel devices and a novel environment. And yeah, we're, we're learning how to use these things. And we are in the process of sitting around the computer screen, staring at these things, thinking, what are the metrics and what are the parameters? And how do we turn these kind of pictures of tracks into kind of good, um, good sort of repeatable science? So we're sort of looking at the initial trajectory of the animals relative to the turbine blades. You know, are they swimming towards them? Are they swimming across them? We're looking at changes in um, you know, changes in behaviour, obviously, in response to the turbine. Is there a sudden change in the angle that they're swimming at? But then a lot of it's just the kind of boring <laughs> sorting out the data. So I just got sent a massive spreadsheet of tidal data from the turbine company yesterday. So obviously our sonars are giving movement of animals relative to the ground we can we now need to calculate movement of the animals relative to the water to see if they're actively swimming or drifting and relative to the turbine so we're kind of in the process of bringing all these data sets together and you know we'll have publications ready i hope in over the next six months and i'll be very very happy to share them with you when they're there but at the moment i genuinely don't know what the results are yet so <laughs> But we, we do see tracks. Okay. But they, they will tell you the, the behavior of these mammals, seals, porpoises, etc., based on your measurements. You won't need to, for example, put cameras in there to actually observe it. You'll be able to know what they're doing from the data that you're getting. No. The, the, these um, some, some people actually refer to these sonar devices as an underwater camera. It's not a, a term I'd particularly use myself, but it gives a... The easiest analogy is you get something that looks very like a radar image out of it. So you've got, they work out to about a 50 meter range. Like most people are familiar with a radar, which is looking at 360 degrees all around you. These are looking at over an angle of about 120 degrees, 120 degrees. So a good kind of wide wedge of data around the turbine. And within that, they give us the positions of animals to actually a few centimeters accuracy. So you can see the shape of the animal, you can see its swim behavior, and that all helps identify to species. And they collect data at a rate of about 10 frames per second. So you end up with something which looks very much like a video of animal movements around the turbine. So it's very, very fine scale data. Cameras underwater are notoriously difficult to use just because the water is so murky that you generally only get a range of a few meters if you're lucky. And obviously, we've got turbine blades at about 20 metres across. I think they're 18 metres in diameter, though people are talking about putting larger ones in. 
So we're monitoring out to a range of about 55 meters at the moment, which gives us quite good coverage around the turbine, whereas cameras just wouldn't be able to do that. And of course, Scotland in winter, you know, you haven't got a hope. Really. <laughs> but you've got to remember also, we're working in some of the fiercest tidal currents in the world. So it's incredibly difficult to work there. You can't put divers down. All of our marine operations are done with remote vehicles, you know, robotic vehicles and quite large ships that can work in that environment. It's a ridiculously hard place to work. Okay. So there's, there is some research that's been uh, published, which I just the mm-hmm. title of this, Harbour Porpoise Presence is Reduced During Tidal Turbine Operation. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's right. So, well, we've been working with the Tidal Turbine Company got four sort of turbines in or up to four turbines in on the north coast of Scotland since about 2016 and the first thing we did was we installed passive acoustic monitors that's underwater microphones on the foundation of one of their turbines and again we operated that for a couple of years I think the original plan was to go for a year but we kept going for another one in the pandemic and so that those underwater microphones won't pick up seals because they very rarely make any noise underwater, but they're very good at picking up harbour porpoises. So harbour porpoises is just a small dolphin species of which is probably the most common marine mammal in European shelf waters. You know, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands out there. And we could use this array of these underwater microphones to track the fine-scale movements of animals around the turbine. We found two main things. One was that there were fewer animals around when the turbine was operating. So clearly there is some kind of avoidance response. But we also, there's a second paper, which actually showed that as well as there being just fewer animals even coming anywhere near our microphones when the turbine's operating, that the ones which we did track close to the turbine, all of them went around it. And there's quite a strong avoidance response where they just basically go around the turbine blades, which is yeah, pretty much what you'd expect an animal to do. In fact, I think it was in something like 400 or 500 days of monitoring. We had one animal track that went clearly through the kind of rotor area, but that happened while the rotors weren't turning. So there were obviously no danger at that time. So it's a kind of, it's a bit of a funny one, this is, because obviously (laughs) as a general principle, we don't want to disturb marine mammals. But this is a case where we do want to disturb them a bit because we want to get around, because <laughs> they've got to go around the turbine, not through it. But on the other hand, we don't want to disturb them too much. You know, we don't want them to leave the area, or if this forms an important migration route, you don't want them to stop using it. So trying to understand their behavioural changes at both these scales is actually quite important. So, you know, you know they're not stupid animals, but and they can definitely sense the presence of the turbine. So you, you would hope that they would go around it. But on the other hand, yeah, these turbines are making a bit of a natural reef out there. And there's certainly the possibility of fish aggregating around the foundations. So, again, if there's a kind of cheap meal, because fish are kind of schooling up behind the turbine, then animals might be quite motivated to take a risk to go in there to try to forage on those fish. But all of these things we don't know and we're trying to answer. Okay. And are they noisy, these turbines? Do they make a, a significant noise in the ocean? Yeah, they're noisy. Again, they're not so noisy that they're going to damage the hearing of a marine mammal. But they are a big bit of machinery. And again, anyone can experience this for themselves. You go and walk under a big wind turbine, 
there's a big bit of machinery grinding away. And it's, it's not, you know, necessarily louder than your own car, but it's, you'll sense that it's there. And there was a paper published by colleagues in the lab at Oban, and they showed that you should be able to hear these turbines a couple of kilometers away. So all marine mammals have good hearing. So porpoises and seals would all be able to sense the presence of that turbine. And of course, all of the cetacean species, all of the dolphin species and the porpoises, they're also echolocating. So they're using their own kind of sonar beam to sense the environment around them. And this will be a very, very big target for their sonar. So they'll know that that turbine is there. But as I said, we don't know what motivations they have to use those areas. And so if there's cheap food or it's an important migration route, then they might be strongly motivated to go through there. But, I mean, the noise in the ocean is a problem anyway, right, with shipping and things. Is this just adding to that? It's not significant, no. I would say the Pentland Ferry that goes through that site four times a day is probably making more noise. But it's it's not a significant contribution to noise, no. And, again, it's in this thing where you, you probably want them to make a bit of noise just to make sure that animals know they're there. The last thing you want is a big turbine blade moving completely slidently through the environment. The animals, you know, especially seals, which they hear, they don't echolocate. They suspect they're very sensitive to vibration. Um, you, you want them to know that this device is there. So again, a bit of noise is probably a good thing. So based on the research that, that that's happened, maybe not even the research that's published, should I be hopeful that, that tidal turbines are going to be part of our energy mix in a way that isn't harmful to the marine environment? Yes. I, I think of all the things we've done to the marine environment over the years... Over the, over the last couple of centuries, especially since basically since we invented propellers, we've been injuring whales and dolphins. And for some species in some areas, that is a very significant problem. So I've done a lot of work on North Atlantic right whales in my life. And there's a remnant population. Yeah, you know, they're decimated by whaling. And um, there's a remnant population of a few hundred animals. And they seem to favour living very close to the shipping lanes on the east coast of the United States. And there's a possibility that you know, animals are being killed every year through collisions with ships. They're being injured by propellers, as are other sort of endangered populations around the world. And this is a problem. So how much tidal energy kind of contributes to those pressures is, is what we're trying to study at the moment. And... It's possible that there's areas where you just shouldn't build tidal turbines. Maybe it's possible that there are areas there aren't, but we can't say. We're doing the research to try to find out at the moment. But again, that's not ultimately... You you change from being a scientist who's there to provide information and also to provide mitigation strategies. So we're looking at automatic detection strategies using, again, passive and active sonar, which could potentially slow or shut down a turbine or play an alerting sound, which could encourage animals to move away. So we're looking at, A, is there a problem? B, can we mitigate against it? But then ultimately, that is up to our governments and our regulators to decide what the um, decide on the sort of relative costs of these things. You know, what is the most important? If it is having a serious impact on a marine mammal population, what is the most important? The clean energy? or the marine mammal population. And that's a sort of a societal question about most human activities. 
And yes, I've got my opinion, but that's my private opinion, which is no more valid than yours or any other person who <clears throat> gets to turn up at the polling stations on the voting day. A lot of it comes down to good governance. <laughs> but, you know, so again, you know, one person's good governance will be one that allows the industry, one's one will be one that protects the marine mammals. So, But quite honestly, you know, the threats to marine mammals from climate change are so vast, and that's coming down the tracks really fast. If you look at the recent warming of our oceans and what that's going to do to some of the prey species that marine mammals are dependent on, they're the big threats to our marine mammal populations and they're the things that are going to really seriously change their distribution and the viability of some populations so you do have to be a little bit careful about overprotecting in one area when actually is stopping humanity dealing with the biggest problem that we've faced in a long long time so but again that's hopefully what governments are there for is to make those decisions as the oceans warm on our planet and sea levels rise, conditions which bring about tropical cyclones, hurricanes and typhoons, which carry higher wind speeds and more rain, are likely to be more prevalent around the globe. I wondered how these storms, whether increasing or even staying as they are, are a concern for tidal stream turbines. Here's Danny Coles again. Yeah, so so certainly um, from an engineering perspective, um, designing the turbines for these sort of extreme cases, you know, where you have large, very large waves coming through is a real challenge and trying to just to even understand, you know, what is the loading on a tidal turbine in those in those conditions is, is, is challenging in itself. Um, you know, so I guess going back to the design of the turbine, um, I was talking earlier about floating devices versus devices that are put on the seabed, you know, obviously, that's a, a, a bigger consideration, I guess, for, for the for the floating devices in that they're more directly affected by those those surface waves. But but also it, it is a very serious consideration for the for the device on the seabed as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work going into that in order to design for these sort of you know 50 year waves sort of things. Um, so I can't really sort of comment more than that in that I'm sort of not not really on that side of it. But um, I'm sure I'm. I'm, I'm I'm certain that that's something that's very much in the in the minds of the designers. Yeah, where, where is the best place for these turbines to be? Because you've got the shipping lanes. Where, where is the best location for with the seabed devices? There's actually a clearance between the top of the rotor and the free surface, you know, top of the water column, um, that, that that does allow certain types of vessel to to pass over. So so that's one way of addressing addressing that sort of problem. Um, the other point to make is that often the tidal resource is, is located in sort of channels where, you know, the flow is basically being funneled through sort of narrow constriction and that accelerates the flow and creates this high energy region. Um, and in some cases, they are the locations that vessels don't tend to, to navigate. Um, and so, you know, in some cases, that's the case also. And then in other cases, yeah, it's going to have to be a case of sort of working in collaboration with um sort of navigation the navigation sector if you like in terms of understanding well where are these vessels going and and how can we work together in order to 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 create those necessary shipping lanes um and respect those shipping lanes that already exist in terms in, in, 
in order to, to develop projects side by side. So you've just been doing some outreach. I presume you've done a fair bit over the side. What, what, what's the public response to this sort of thing? Yeah, I think uh, really supportive, actually. Um, so, yeah, we've been, we've been doing some outreach at Green Man Festival in Wales. Um, we have a stand there uh, demonstrating wave, tidal and, and wind energy. Um, and I think in general, there's a, there's a really high level of interest, especially in wave and tidal, in that there's, there's not as much sort of knowledge about, about those two technologies, Obviously wind turbines, everyone's sort of aware of. Um, and, and really an acknowledgement that, you know, we have this incredible resource around the UK's coastlines um, and, and harnessing it seems like such a such a sensible and, and a necessary approach in order to achieve our net zero goals. So. Yeah, I think I think in general the feedback was great, and I think kids kids are really interested in, in these t- technologies that, that are really quite innovative, um, and so I think there's a real a real sort of um, alignment there in terms of ha- ha- the feedback we've had um, and and where we're taking the research. So it's really nice to see. When might I be uh, turning on my kettle and 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 knowing that it's powered partly by the tides. Yeah, so there's already tidal stream turbines installed uh, in the water, especially in Scotland. So there's the European Marine Energy Centre up there that's specifically designed as a sort of stepping stone for developers to take their tidal turbines, test them in real-life conditions, real offshore conditions, before then moving to a commercial project, if you like. Um, And then there's also the Maygen array up in Scotland as well that's got four turbines installed, um, and is generating power and has been doing that for the last sort of um, six years or so. A really important sort of step change that we've seen recently is that government have now um, decided to uh, provide specific funding, subsidy support for tidal stream energy projects. So, for example, the project I mentioned in, at Maygen, that has, that has attracted subsidy support that will mean that more turbines are going to be installed in the next sort of four or five years. Um, so in terms of the installed capacity uh, within UK waters, that's going to increase significantly um, within those sorts of timescales. And hopefully what we're hoping is that government will continue to provide that level of subsidy support as it's already done for wind and solar um, in order to continue that sort of acceleration and growth. Energy security is something that people are talking a lot about. It, I guess I guess a good example of this would be to go back to the start of the energy crisis back in 2021, um, where we had a scenario where um, there was a significant reduction in the amount of wind power being generated around autumn 2021 as a result of just the wind not blowing as hard as, as we expect for that time of year. Um, and that was combined with really high electricity prices that were, were, were from from imports from Europe as a result of, you know, the world coming out of COVID, uh, things getting back up and running again, those sorts of things. Um, and what it really highlighted was the energy security risk that the UK is facing and other countries as well. Um, and really, I suppose where the research is going, both from a Tiger perspective and also the University of Plymouth is, is, is trying to understand, well, by installing tidal turbines, how does that improve and enhance our energy security and our energy resilience, if you like, against these sort of events that we know are going to come up in the future? Uh, we don't know when and we don't know how and we don't know by how much, but we know they will come up. 
And so protecting protecting the energy system in those cases is going to be really important. So I think the research is now providing a really solid evidence base for, for how it can do that by enhancing supply demand and all of those sorts of things. Um, and, and that can be a real benefit to the UK moving forward. So I think that's where we want to take the research further um, from a security point of view. Um, and, and we're seeing that reflected in government now in terms of their move to a department for energy security and net zero um, to really sort of acknowledge that this is something that energy systems of the future need to be designed for. Because yeah, the Tiger project is... It's actually it's coming to an end now. So it's been going for the last four years and it's coming to an end. Uh, it will finish at the end of October. So we're just at the process of now sort of, you know, finalizing all the reports and, and getting everything submitted in order to uh, to get that finished off. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning, actually, that the Tiger project has a website with all of the outputs from the project. And um, there's a really good sort of knowledge base there. So very much worth checking out. We'll post links to that and everything else that we've talked about on this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, including that opportunity for you to get involved in that research that the European Space Agency is doing into the Solaris project on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. You may also be interested to know that IOP Publishing has recently launched a new open access journal called Environmental Research Energy, which is a new addition to the IOPP's expanding environmental research series. And you may also like to know that IOP Publishing have an upcoming conference called Environmental Research 2023, a series of free-to-attend online events from the 16th of October to the 23rd of November that will bring leading environmental experts together to exchange knowledge and address crucial challenges related to the environment and sustainability. Of course, we'll share a link to that on the Physics World website. We'll be back next month when we'll be bringing you that promised episode on the International Year of Basic Sciences for Sustainable Development. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.